Church. Welcome. If this is your first time here, let me say, hey, thank you for being here. Thanks for um, choosing to worship with us, us, worship with us on this uh, holiday weekend. The beach will still be there this afternoon, but we won't be here in the theater. Avengers will be or something. Well, I'm glad that you're here. We had a great time of worship in the first hour, and um, this morning we continue our Relate series. A couple of weeks ago, we began with looking at motherhood. What does God's word have to say about motherhood? And looked at it differently um, through some difficulties, through a story of a woman who longed for a child and in time had one, but there was a time. There was a tough time. And last week, we looked at uh, how to better uh, relate as singles or relating to singles and what is God's agenda and mission through singleness. And this morning, we continue on in this Relate series looking at friendship. Scott, our lead pastor, asked me to speak about friendship. And the first thing I thought when asked about this is, how can you talk about friendship in a way that doesn't come off like an after-school special? Everyone just try harder and be nice. And when you think of your friends, what is it that brought you together? When you think about your elementary school friends, for those that uh, can remember that far back, what was it that brought you together? Common interest? For me, it was the sports that we enjoyed. I love collecting baseball cards. Who could I rip off? That was my friend. And uh, playing sports, who could I beat if they could beat me that I don't want to be their friend? Who was really smart so I could do better academically? Because it wasn't going to be for me. I did graduate from high school, and I don't know how. So I had some smart friends. But who are your friends? But really this morning, we want to look at not just necessarily who are our friends, but what kind of friend are we? And I think that uh, God's word speaks clearly and plainly about the kind of friend that we ought to be as believers. And I'm just praying that God this morning would... uh, change our lives, change our perspective, and that he'd give us power to be the kind of friend that he desires to be. Would you pray with me right now? Lord, for this morning, we thank you. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy in this day. Your renown is on our lips. We long for you to be known. We, we want to spread the fame of your name uh, through our worship this morning. Lord, I pray for each person here, including myself, Lord, that you would help us to evaluate our hearts in light of your word that we'd leave here challenged and refreshed. And Lord, I thank you so much for the first service and how you showed up. Lord, would you please do that again? Would you please allow your spirit to be at great work? We know we can't conjure up anything ourselves through our self-will, Lord. We can't do anything of lasting and eternal difference without you. You are the one who does the life change. And we welcome you into this church. We long to be a church that makes much of you and that you would reign and rule in our lives. So Lord, we, as we open your word, Lord, we desire to have an encounter with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, then turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And today we're going to be focusing on the kind of friend that we are to others. And Scott had asked me to look at a, one of the most famous relationships in all of scripture. It's the story of David and Jonathan, some of you know, for those that grew up in church, you would know that this is probably the most famous friendship recorded in Scripture. There's some others, Ruth and Naomi, which is a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, and Barnabas with all his friends, what a great encourage he, he was. But when people talk about friendship, they most often look at this relationship, and then they look to the Lord, as Lord calls himself a friend, and we'll talk about that in a moment. This morning, we want to look at some essentials in being a godly friend, essentials in being a godly friend. And in chapter 18, we'll look at the beginning of a relationship, but let me set up some context, because every story happens within context, right? You have to know the context when you're studying the scriptures. If I said the phrase, and they just died, you have no context of what I said. 
If I'd have said, my daughter told a joke and my family, they just died in laughter. That gives a different context than something morbid, doesn't it? And so this story that we're looking at today, starting in chapter 18, begins within a context. And the context actually starts in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, where the king at the time of God's people was Saul. He was chosen by the people to be a king because they were tired of God, who is spirit, being their king. So God gave them what they wanted. And sometimes he does that, doesn't he? Even though it's bad. He lets people have what they want, and usually it turns us around to him. So the people had the opportunity, the power to choose a king because they didn't want God to be their king, so they chose Saul. Do you know why? Because he was tall and handsome. Great qualifications for leadership, isn't it? He was a tall guy. You're taller than all of us. You're three inches taller than my best friend. you got to know how to rule. So he led, and in time, he wasn't interested in leading as God wanted him to lead. And so the scriptures say this, that the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. We see this in the Old Testament as God is with someone and then removes his spirit from them. In the New Testament, for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, God's spirit is sealed upon us. So we don't lose him, but we can grow in our filling with him. We can grieve and quench him. But this is a unique time and place. And in chapter 15, we see that God's spirit is not with Saul. And so God tells in the next chapter, Samuel, who is God's priest, to go and anoint a new king, God's choice. And so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse has several sons, and he's looking at these sons. They all seem to be pretty good. But one by one, they pass by Samuel, and God said, that's not the one, that's not the one. And it's the youngest one that ends up being the one. And this is where you get the famous verse that men look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. So God chooses a boy, and Samuel anoints him with oil. And the scriptures say this, that the Spirit of God came upon David. And that was... God's choice for a human king for God's people. If, it's, if they're going to have a king that's a human, God says, I'm going to have my spirit on them, and I'm going to flow through this king to rule these people. But Saul was still on the throne. So David's the anointed king, but Saul is on the throne. And then we get to chapter 17, and Israel's fighting foes are the Philistines. And this is where we see the famous story of David versus Goliath. So the Philistines sent out their champion, Goliath. He starts shutting all his names and calling everybody dogs. And then no one will stand up against him because he's giant. And his spear was the size of a weaver's beam. I have no idea what that is. Okay? Big, big tools, big equipment, real strong. And no one's standing up to this guy. And guess what happens? This shepherd boy, this anointed, spirit-filled boy, hears what this giant is saying against God's people and against God. And he says, I got to go fight this guy. This, this isn't going to stand. We can't let someone talk like this about our God. And so he goes and he beats Goliath, doesn't he? With a stone. I've actually been to that place. I have a stone in my office from the same field. Sometimes I like to think that's the stone that got him, but that's probably somewhere else. I don't know. This is the one. Hmm. So then David beats him, and then David gets brought before King Saul for this amazing conquest. And let's look at our story. And today we're just looking at one story because we're looking at several texts in chapters 18 through 23. Usually we speak through one text, verse to verse, word to word, but this morning's a little bit different with friendship being so wide. We're looking at a story that's long. So I'm going to do a lot of narrating, and I trust that you'll be able to flow with me, pick up what I'm putting down, and let's look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, presenting himself before the king as he defeated Goliath, Jonathan, this is Saul's son, as we've learned from previous chapters, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. 
What happens next is Jonathan bring, uh, Saul brings David into his court and makes him a captain of the guard. And David becomes this amazing battle, this amazing warrior on behalf of God's people. See, knowing how kingdoms have worked through the ages and anointed by God David would be uh, a sense of, in a sense, be Jonathan's rival for the throne. Right, if you've looked at Russian heritage or if you, history, if you looked at Roman history, when there's a coup or when there's a new person on the throne, they eliminate all the former family, don't they? And so actually what we see here is the first essential in being a godly friend. And if you're writing notes, you can write this down. The first essential in being a godly, fr- in godly friendship is being committed to expressing God's love. Being committed to expressing God's love. And I can't remember, I can't really find in here where Saul and Jonathan were told that David was the anointed one, but something that Jonathan sees in David, this guy stands for God's truth, for God's word, God's plan stood up in opposition. Jonathan himself has been a battle war, has been a warrior. He stood up against opposition, but he sees David uniquely and he says, That's gotta be my friend. That's gotta be, that's gotta be my guy. I need to be around him. And so Jonathan's actions. Jonathan's choice is to love David, and his actions are saying to David, I'm telling you, I'm showing you, I'm promising to be your friend. When the scriptures teach that Jonathan loved David as himself, what this is, this is a deep concern or affections. It wants for another what you would want for yourself. It's desiring what is best for another. And this is the kind of love that flows from God and is freely given to all others who call on his name. I don't know if you know this or not, but love is a commandment, not a suggestion. For those that are in Christ Jesus, we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is linked to it. It's just like it. You can't fulfill the first one without the second one, and that is to love your neighbor as. And what did the scriptures say that Jonathan did? Jonathan loved David as. Now here's the problem. Not many of us like ourselves. I'm not a big fan of myself. So this scripture is really tough for me to understand. But I, the idea of loving someone as you love yourself is nurturing and care what is best, what is desired. See, this is why love is a choice. Here's a definition of love. We've given it, I've given it often here at Southbridge. Love is a choice that yields to another's best interest. That is love. I choose to yield to what is best for you. It's manifested in several ways as expressed in the infamous text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a very famous passage read in weddings this summer. In summers past and years past, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, always rejoices in the truth or when the truth wins out, always protects, always perseveres, love always trusts, by the way. This is what Jonathan has for David. It's God's kind of love and it begins with a choice. Love is a choice. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, and there's lots of scripture about friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. Love has, though, come to mean something very different in our time and culture and context, hasn't it? It's come to be more of a contract. If you do this for me, then I like you, and I'll call that love. I say I love my wife, but I also love ice cream buffet. I just now used the same word to describe my wife and ice cream buffet. We've got to find another word, right? There's seven words in Hebrew for love. I think there's at least three in Greek for love. We've got this one word, love, and we just place it on everything. I love my team. I love my friends. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my God. It's kind of weak, isn't it? Are our allegiances to our favorite restaurant the same as our allegiance to our friends? <laughs> 
So what we see in scripture is that love comes from God because God is love. And God himself demonstrates a yielding to our best interest when he himself sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to take on our sin upon himself, our punishment upon himself, so that whoever would believe in him would not be separated from God forever, but would have everlasting life with Christ. That's yielding to another's best interest. This is exactly the kind of love that David or Jonathan has with David in any return. The scripture says that Jonathan makes a covenant with David. A covenant is a promise. And see, most covenants come with a symbol, and we see one actually in this text here. For instance, we see covenants throughout the Old Testament. When God promises that he'll never flood the earth again, what is the symbol of that covenant? Do you remember? A rainbow, yeah. So actually, God's invisible qualities and his commitment and his loyalty and love is expressed through his nature, rainbow. When you see a rainbow, you you remember that God will never destroy the earth like that again. We see other covenants, other commitments and symbols of those uh, covenants. When Jesus, in his last meal with his friends, he takes the cup and he says, this represents the new covenant in my blood. We see this at weddings where we exchange rings. There's nowhere in scripture that it's mandated that you exchange a ring. I always thought, why don't people like, well, it needs to be, it represents, the ring represents eternity. I said, why don't people give wreaths to each other, just lay a wreath on someone's neck forever? I guess that'd get in the way, I don't know. But it'd be weird and you'd stand out. But rings are symbols of our covenant, right? Our commitment, take the ring off, I'm still married. For all you that travel and take your ring off because you want to show like you maybe you're not married, maybe I'm stepping on some toes here. You're still married, you're still covenant. This is a symbol, a sign of your covenant. And we see a symbol or a sign of a covenant in this text right here. Look at verse 4. Verse 3, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Verse 4, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The covenant friendship that is made here is a symbol. The removal of his robe is a ceremonial act by Jonathan and could be, could be used as symbolically and prophetically transferring his place in the kingdom the prince, to David. Now, I don't know if you know the whole story. We got, you got to spend time this week reading chapters 15 to 23. Do it, I challenge you. We know that earlier on when David went to go fight Goliath, that Saul offered his armor and it just wouldn't fit, so he was too uh, encumbered by it. But now he's given these clothes. He puts on these clothes. So David goes from wearing his lowly shepherd boy clothes to the clothes of a prince. What a picture. This is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is also what we experience when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. A change takes place. We are now heirs to the King of Kings. You are a prince or a princess if you're in Jesus Christ. Go around telling people that. <laughs> well, what's your inheritance? Oh, I get everything, all, every spiritual blessing I need. Well, where's the gold? Not much gold, but I'll be walking on streets of them. Yeah. That's how much gold needs in heaven. We walk on it. But there's this change When we take in Christ, we put on his clothes. We're clothed in robes of righteousness by the righteousness of Christ placed on us. The truth is that lots of people make covenants, don't they? Lots of people make commitments. Lots of people say they love something or someone. That's not the special part of this story. It's the keeping of the covenant. It's the keeping of the commitment that makes this relationship so unique and that reflects God's style. Because we're talking about godly friendship. And God is committed. God is loving. And David and Jonathan choose to be commit, committed and they're expressing God's love to one another. And that's the rest of their story. So we've looked at the beginning of their story. The scriptures tell us this, this in Proverbs chapter 18. A man of many com, uh, companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the friend that sticks closer to, the, to a brother is one that loves as God loves. What's really great is when your brother can be a great friend, isn't it? 
My brother just moved here. I haven't lived by any of my family members uh, since being an adult, which probably began for me at age 30, but 20-something. And now he lives here in the area. When have you, when have, let me just ask you this, as you evaluate yourself, I'm not going to give much application to decide for you, but think about this. Think about this commitment, this covenant of love that's given between David and Jonathan. Think about the kind of friend you are, which is what we're doing. We're running our lives through the scriptures, using scriptures as a filter. When have you expressed this kind of love? When have you expressed a yielding to another's best interest? What kind of friend are you? Who in your life needs this kind of love right now? God's kind. And the difficult truth is this, and I'm going to share it with you, is that you can only express God's love in as much as you've received and experienced God's love. So if you don't have a friendship with Jesus Christ, you can't demonstrate God's character of love because God is love. You can demonstrate something else, maybe what our culture calls love. I like what you do from here, a contract, but you might fall out of love. See, God doesn't fall out of love with people because it's a choice to yield to another's best interest. It's a choice. That's it. David and Jonathan had the same thing, and we can have same, the same thing as David and Jonathan because we can be connected to God through Jesus Christ. Who in your life right now needs a committed yielding to their best interest from you? Is someone in your mind? Ask God to help you. And let me tell you this. Because this kind of love can only come from God, I gotta tell you what my, one of my prayer requests is, God, give me a love that can only come from you. Because the truth is, right, some people aren't very lovely. <laughs> and they might be in your family. They might be people that you call your friends. Did you ever have friends growing up that would like be friends with you in private, but in public they would like make fun of you and diss you? And It's terrible, isn't it? How do you love like that? You love with God's love. You yield to what is best for them. And this is exactly what Jonathan does. Jonathan has insight enough somehow to know that what is best to David is that he yields himself to David, where he submits who he is, his place, his possessions. He says, David, you're my friend, and I'm showing you that you are my friend, and I want to be your friend. Transitioning a bit then. So the first essential is that we are committed to expressing God's love. We see later on in chapter 18 that um, Saul um, lives by the old adage, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies so he holds David even closer. He brings David into his courts. David goes out and um, slays all these Philistines. The people sing songs about how Saul killed thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. So David is this crazy, David's this crazy warrior. Then Jonathan also brings him to his courts because Saul suffers from just an evil spirit in his life. He suffers from uh, depression, anger, anxiety. And so David also has the skill to play music on this harp. So he plays the harp and Saul becomes calm. So you got this Renaissance man's like Jed Walters, our worship pastor. This amazing warrior and also this guy that can play music. Jad does flooring, by the way, so maybe he's better than David. I don't know. But what's so interesting in the middle of chapter 18 is that Saul tries to strike David. He throws his spear at him, misses twice. Not very good aim. And then in chapter 19, so David runs away. And then the text says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Saul could see something in David that was different and deficient in his own life. Then in chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David again by the spear and misses again. And David escapes with the help of his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael. And in chapter 20, David flees to find Jonathan and asks, what did I do to make your dad so angry? What's happening? Your dad is crazy, and Jonathan couldn't believe it. Jonathan has a friendship with his dad that they're tight. His dad tells him everything he thinks. This can't possibly be. Maybe, David, you're misinterpreting things. Maybe he's trying to play catch with you with the spear. Yeah. 
His dad and him are tight. And so Jonathan is in a difficult spot, isn't he? Between allegiance to his father and now to his friend. And so David says, there's only a single step. You can read this this week. There's only a single step between me and death. So let's look at our second essential, chapter 20, verse 8. A sizable passage I'm going to read for you, several verses, but we're going to catch our essential here as expressed to one another, David to Jonathan and Jonathan to David. So they're debating on whether or not Jonathan can believe David's testimony. And then David says, as for you, show kindness to your servant. Remember, David's the anointed king. Show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, if you think I'm lying, if you think I want to take out your dad, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Who will tell me if you find out that your dad is really against me? Jonathan said, come, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I'll surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, I will not send you word and let you know. Will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. If I'm not going to tell you the truth about this, then let God take me out. Wow. Verse 14, or just before, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. That shows that David, or Jonathan doesn't quite have all the information, right? Because he still believes that the spirit of God is with Saul, but he's not. Verse 14, Now Jonathan asks David, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as himself. The second essential, and there's so many we could list for friendship, but another essential in godly friendship is being loyal and expressing God's kindness. We see this twice. David asked for God's kind of kindness from Jonathan, and then Jonathan asks it of David to his life. In discussing, discussing Saul's issues with David, David recognizes that Jonathan is in this terrible position. He's coming under incredible pressure to support Saul and abandon their covenant relationship. So David pleads for kindness. Please be true. Please be true, he's saying. Please show God's kindness. Please remain true. Please remain loyal. And then Jonathan pleads back with David to show kindness, God's kindness, and never cut off his kindness to Jonathan's descendants. Why would Jonathan ask for David's kindness to his own descendants? Because Jonathan gets the plan. He gets that David's the man. Amazing. The essence of the relationship between David and Jonathan is a covenant that love promises of mutual protection. When you look at your friendships, how do you protect them? Not placate, not just tell them what their ears want to hear, but how do you protect them? How do you, how do you show your loyalty and kindness to them? They're committed to looking out for one another. And this is called fierce loyalty. The word that is used, uh, that is translated here in English as kindness, could be spelled in um, English uh, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. This word means loyalty, meekness, generosity. It was used in here in chapter 20, verse 8, and in verses 14 to 15 with each other. And it's used 246 times to refer to God's benevolent actions expressed toward people. 
So this word can be used between God and people, people to God and people to people. And it is throughout scripture. So a definition of kindness, God's kindness, is, it's a loyal and tender concern for others, exemplified in treating others gently. This kindness is more than just being nice to people though. <laughs> right? Isn't that what we do well in the South? We're friendly, happy face with everybody? How's today going? Today's going great. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And then your mind is thinking, I wish you wouldn't, you know, park your car in front of my driveway, or I wish you wouldn't let your dog, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's not kindness, right? That's fake. And we don't need any more help in that way. What we need in our friendships is a loyalty to com- expressing God's kindness. It's a spirit-given willingness to provide what is best for others. So it's benevolence, which means love. So love is first. Kindness comes from love. It's an expression of love. It's benevolence and action. Do you have anyone in your life that expresses this, and how are you doing? I can tell you this. In my life, my wife has a spirit-given kindness. It's expressed in the fact that for over a decade, she's desired to help other people adopt and do foster care. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but there's millions and millions of orphans, and I think she wants us to adopt them all. Even if they're 80. Yeah. And I've known this from the beginning of our friendship. Our first date, she said that she was going into social work. There's only six kids on the whole campus studying social work. This is not normal. Caring for others. I talked about things that I don't like, like mayonnaise on our first date. It was very different conversations. <laughs> yeah. So I saw something unique in her, this Holy Spirit kindness. But guess what? Our church families, our church family, her members are filled with people that have the spirit of kindness in them. Because spirit is a byproduct of hanging out with Jesus. That's why it's called a fruit of the spirit. Kindness is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Lots of people. So in our pursuit, Amanda and I were pursuing this baby boy in Russia. We've named him Titus. He's going to be two in September. We hope he gets to arrive here in the States before he turns two. We've got two more visits to make. But it's not even possible without the kindness of our friends and even new friends that we've made at Southbridge and beyond, outside the walls of Southbridge. Without their kindness, we could never do it. Without their benevolence, we could never do it. Money's not going to be a problem. And child care is not a problem for our four that we have at home. We've experienced this kindness over and over and over again. But how do you express it? How are you doing? This wanting to help seeing people come to Jesus and treating people right doesn't come naturally to people. It's a God-given desire. And see, you can only express God's kindness as you've come to know it in your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ spills out into how we interact with all others. Your deep friendship with Jesus is manifested in your thoughtfulness of the, of the needs of others. This is why it's said of Jesus Christ that he saw people as a sheep without a shepherd. They were in great need. He saw them being abused and mistreated spiritually by the rules of men. He longed in his gentleness and kindness to communicate his love. See, when your life is about Christ, it ultimately will be about others, right? Because the will of God is linked to loving him and loving others. So being committed to expressing the Lord's kindness only happens as a byproduct of being committed to the Lord himself, his word, his spirit's work, and God's will. So if you want to grow in kindness, if you're thinking, okay, I have a friend in my life that I know needs kindness. I know I need to figure out a way to be benevolent toward them in my actions. If you want to grow in how to do that, then this is what you do. You learn more about Jesus. 
Just learn more about Jesus. Examine how God works. Look at how Christ lived and ask the Holy Spirit to be kind through you. He loves to come through with things that are related to his character. So you can rub the lamp and use God as a genie to ask for that new car you want all the time or your big house. That may never come, but you say, Lord, I want your kindness to come through me. Yes, it's a yes. I want your love to come through me. Yes. And it may be painful. Right now I'm asking for God's patience. Patience is a byproduct of God's spirit in my life. And patience, here's the iron, um, ironical thing about that. Here's the ironic thing about that. It takes time. Painfully. Back to the story. Saul is attempting to supersede God's plan by pres- preserving his own line in what he thinks is in the best interest of Jonathan. And that is why in chapter 20, verse 31, he, goes, he gets very specific with Jonathan because David's missed a big banquet a couple days in a row and has asked Jonathan, where are you? Where's David? Where's David? And Jonathan gave David an excuse for the first night and then the second time comes around and then Jonathan basically asks his dad, what's your problem with David? And then, John, then Saul gets very clear. Remember, Saul's trying to figure out what his dad's intentions are with David, even though he's already told David that he would never harm him. Then Saul says this, For as long as David lives, you or your kingdom will not be established. David must die. And then Saul threatens to kill Jonathan with a spear and misses again. This is not the guy you'd have represent your team in the javelin contest. <laughs> and Jonathan is enraged. He's been defending his dad to his best friend. He's told his best friend that I hope that God's spirit's with you like he's with my dad. So Jonathan leaves Saul's presence in a rage over now realizing that his father is not in tune with God's spirit or will. And he's grieved at his father's shameful mistreatment of his friend. And he goes to find David and he says, you're right. You're right. See, friends seek, godly friends seek to demonstrate a loyalty in, kind, in God's kindness, even when it's real rough. Jonathan is not less in loving to his dad. His dad is out of tune. His dad is out of step. And so Jonathan goes to find David to tell him, you're right. But he's overcome with emotion. I want to look at one more scripture that's kind of in light of this one. But if we skipped it, we'd be skipping out a significant moment. Some people think this is the last moment they have. They don't. There's one more. We're going to look at one more. But scroll down. Look at chapter 20. So this is after Jonathan found out that David's or that Saul's intentions are to kill David for his benefit, Saul says. But look at verse 41. <clears throat> and I'll try uh, to get through it. So Jonathan has a plan with David that he should hide behind a stone, and if he shoots any arrows beyond the stone, a boy will come and get that, but that means you're not welcome to come back. If I shoot an arrow that's before the stone, that means you're welcome to come. The arrow goes beyond the stone. David sees it. Jonathan has to give him the message. You're not welcome to come back to home. A boy goes and gets the arrow. Then David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times. Who did the bowing? David. And who's the anointed king? Wow. With his face to the ground... Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David, David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants, forever. They kissed one another as was a custom of dear friendship at the time. We see this in the Old Testament and New Testament. Do you remember who betrayed Jesus? What was his name? Judas, and he betrayed him with a 
kiss. Peter says in the one of one another statements that we see in scripture to greet one another with a holy kiss, definitely Eastern culture. And David and Jonathan have this amazing friendship and Jonathan has just now found out that he used to defend his dad, but now he can't. And David knows that Jonathan knows and they see each other and they're, they mourn with each other over this reality. They're in a terrible predicament. And it's painful, and David weeps. He weeps for his friend who's lost his dad. And so they embrace, and they, they kiss one another. And let me just add here that this is a, there's a marked difference in the Bible between sensual kissing and the cultural kiss of this culture. In fact, the language that's used to describe David's inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba is very different language than this language that he has with Jonathan. It's popular right now to use this text to showcase a same-sex relationship that God's cool with. But this is not that. This is not that. It's actually taking away from their relationship if you suggest that. Because this is the kind of friendship that any of us can have when we go to buy into God's style of relationships and relating to one another. This is significant, a marked moment in loyalty and in God's kindness. This moment is one of extreme measures of both. So let me tell you, now, if you don't know yet, the future of this friendship, listening to this story, it's like a movie, isn't it? It's like it's not even real, but it is. Even people that don't believe that Jesus is the way believe that this story is true. People that don't even believe the Bible believe this story to be true. The rest of the story goes like this. And it's Jonathan's loyalty to David that partially makes it possible for David to survive and replace Saul as king. It is David's faithfulness then to Jonathan that leads him to preserve Jonathan's heritage. I want to tell you the story, and you can read it on your own. In time, what happens is that Jonathan dies in battle, and so does his dad. His dad, Saul, falls on his own sword. In one text, it says that. Another text, it says that God brought him home. So God's sovereignty is at play here. And on hearing upon this, the nanny of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, 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 Jonathan's nanny for his son is running with him and something happens where he's injured and the scripture relates that Jonathan's son is crippled. Over and over again it says this. And when David comes to take the throne, in time David remembers his promise to Jonathan and instead of eliminating all his uh, enemies, which would include the formal, former king's family, he welcomes Jonathan's son to his table. This man that's been cast aside as Jonathan's son he welcomes him. I just have to wonder every time he sees Jonathan's son, that's my, he looks just like my friend. David doesn't have to do this. Jonathan's dead. Who cares, right? I got what I wanted. Isn't that how it typically would go? <laughs> Make covenants with the right people, and then when it's done, I'm out. And David welcomes his son. And so the loyalty and kindness that these two experienced go on to have a ripple effect of people outside of them too, to, to family and friends. Who in your life needs God's kindness from you? And can you start wondering and dreaming about how the ripple effect would bless other people? I can remember uh, um, the fact that my great-grandfather is our spiritual patriarch of our family. He loved the Lord, and he shared the gospel with his kids. Then his kids adopted my dad in 1953. Then my dad loved me so much that he allowed me to hear the gospel myself. The ripple effect of blessing, loyalty to God's word, loyalty to people, loyalty to one another and kindness. What difference could it make in our culture and context if Christians here loyally reflected the kindness of the Lord to others? What do you think? 
It's humbling to look at this friendship and consider our own, isn't it? Let me continue with the story. When Jonathan goes to discern if his father is truly planning on killing him, this is when he finds out that it's true. And in time, what happens is David leaves Jonathan after the passage that we just looked at. And David continues in hiding in the desert until the last time it is mentioned that they actually see each other. And here's what's so interesting. Saul finds out that David's hiding in the, in the desert and he sends all his people to go find him. But the text says this, that the Lord made it impossible for Saul to find him. However, Jonathan goes right to him. <laughs> the Lord is truly sovereign, isn't he? So Jonathan and his commitment to his friend, goes and finds David in the desert. And this is the last exchange we see between them two. Turn there with me. This is 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. This will be our last text today. Looking at and considering the essentials of being a godly friend, are we committed in expressing God's love? Are we loyal in expressing God's kindness? We don't want fake pleasantries. We want God's kindness coming through, from him through us to another. And here's the last text for this morning. Look at verse 14. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Verse 15. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life again. And Saul's sons, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh. And underline this if you write in your Bibles. And helped him find strength in God. What an awesome, what an awesome friend. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. It's going to be great, isn't it? Keep the faith. This is God's plan. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. And then we really can't be sure if they ever saw each other again. And then Jonathan dies. See, the, another essential then in godly being a godly friend is being faithful and expressing God's truth. Being faithful and expressing God's truth. I can tell you that sometimes I try to be a friend in my own strength. I try to be a friend in my own kind of love or my own kind of kindness. And it always falls short. So it's shorter. It's manipulative. It's not holy. It's not pure. And then I want to come alongside people and I really want to encourage them, but I give them my kind of wisdom or my truth. There's no power behind that. Isn't it interesting that Jonathan didn't come and say, David, listen, listen, I'll take care of everything. It's okay. He didn't minimize David's problem. Yeah, you're in the desert, but it's a, it's a dry heat. He didn't say anything like that. Do you ever have friends that try to encourage you, but as soon as they speak, it's the opposite of what God would say? We see this in the book of Job. Job goes through these terrible tragedies like no one has ever seen. And then his friends come to comfort him, and they sit silent with him. I think it's seven days. Does anybody know? I think it's seven days. Then when they start speaking, they start saying opposite God stuff. God helps those that who help themselves. This bad thing happened to you because you did bad things. Not of the Lord. However, Jonathan goes to comfort his friend. He finds him easily with God's help. And what does he do? He helps him to try to, he helps him find strength in the Lord. The Lord is truth. So if we're going to be godly friends, we're going to direct people back to God. Godly friendships, love for love's sakes, not for what it can get in return. True friendships, sacrifices, and godly kindness to one another. But it also involves being truthful, even though it may hurt. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16, we read that Jonathan went to go find, help David find strength in God. So Jonathan reminds David of the truth. God's plan for him and his own concern for him, assuring David that the Lord would make him the next king. Not him. 
So the question has to be asked, if we're going to assist other people, if we're going to be good godly friends to other people, and the essential is that we need to express God's truth, we need to faithfully express God's truth to our friends if we're truly a friend, how do we do this? How do we help other people find strength in God? Here's some ideas. You can write them down. Number one, displaying godly compassion and concern. Be concerned for the predicament that they're in. Be concerned for their life. Think about others. Scientifically, we know that people can't step outside of themselves around age 11. That's when they can start putting themselves in another person's shoes. But brains are still being formed until age 29. Is it hard for you to put yourself in another person's shoes? Ask God for compassion. He'll give it to you. He may not give you a pot of gold, but he'll give you compassion. Next, prayer. Praying with your friend and for your friend. Is that a characteristic of your friendships? Or do you usually just talk about games or how, the work, how work is or what you're drinking? But are you directing people to God's truth? I can tell you this, that when I came to know Christ as a young boy, when I was seven, immediately in my mind, my family's pretty small, but I have one cousin that's a couple years older than me that I really wanted him to know Christ right away when I was seven. That's, in my mind, I had to tell my cousin, but my cousin's a couple years older than me and very smart, and I was intimidated by how smart he was because I don't know anything about the Bible and still don't, and you have to know everything about the Bible to tell people about your life in Christ, right? No. And I couldn't share with him. I couldn't find the courage to share with him until I was around 22, and I had anxiety over it. But if I love him, I have to tell him. I can tell you this just by way of transparency that I get easily overcome by anxiety. Some might say I'm high strung. I don't know if you could tell. I don't know what it means. My mom says I am. Over and over again, I turn to friends in Christ to have them communicate the truth to me. Each one of the pastors on our staff I'm a friend with, and each to each one of them I've gone to over the anxieties of my life. I get terribly anxious over meeting with people about saying the right thing and wanting them to find the truth in the Lord. But I'm not going to compromise the truth, but I don't want them to go away. I'm, a, I'm fearful of what's going to happen. I'm uncertain of what's going to happen. And so what happens is I struggle in myself to go find strength in the Lord, and God has used friends to do it. Most notably, I can remember um, when John Cullen, our executive pastor, first joined our team, I can remember having a really tough day, a really tough appointment with somebody, and without breaking confidence with him about what everything was said in there, I just told him I'm grief-stricken of this, and John Cullen, his disposition, I don't know if you know him or not, but his wearing is pretty straight. That's not true. Right? And I'm like all over the place. No, nope. that's not what God says. I can tell you that the people that usually God uses to use his word to soothe me, as a balm would to a, a sore are people that are wired like that. Mentors I have in the church. People that are over our mentoring ministry here at church, they're wired like that. That's not true. That's not what God's word says. Who do you have in your life that tells you the truth and who do you have in your life that needs to hear the truth from you? The truth is that you can only express God's truth in as much as you've come to know the truth. Again, the same kind of point. Jesus said, this is why Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's the truth. Why can't Christianity be so narrow? Jesus said it. Jesus said it. And Jesus said that it is narrow. There's a narrow gate. And only few find it. How can we grow then at knowing and sharing the truth as a benefit to our friends? Are you ready? This is really... Get to know God's word. 
ultimately the question we have to ask ourselves in evaluating the kind of friend that we are really is, in what ways am I a benefit to my friend's relationship to Jesus? If they don't know Jesus, how can I help them know Christ? If they know Christ, how can I strengthen them in the Lord? And if you can focus on those two things, you will be an amazing friend, even if someone tells you you're not. So in considering all this, the point isn't really to be like David and Jonathan, is it? <laughs> the point is that we should reflect the character of our Lord in our relationships, in our friendships. All the good things that are found in David and Jonathan, all the good character in them, is actually found in him. He's committed, he's loyal, he's faithful, he's love, he's kind, he's the truth. In fact, friendship is God's idea. He created people to be in relationship, first with him and with one another. It's his genius idea. We're the ones that mess it up. In fact, God calls himself a friend. And I used to think, if I can be honest with you, I used to think, well, people say they're a friend of God. It sounds like they're bringing God down, right? Because friend seems like a lesser word than God. But I think after this week, what I've really been convicted of and convinced of is that I thought I had an amplified view of God because friend needs to be lower than God. But if God calls himself a friend, he calls himself a friend to Abraham, to Moses. Jesus calls himself a friend to his disciples. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Maybe my view isn't a problem with my view of God. I have a low view of friend. So I need to amplify my view of friend to match it with God's view of friend so then God can come through me to bless other people richly. Wouldn't that change the world? It's not bringing God down. He uses the word of himself. So to be a godly friend to another ultimately requires a sacrifice of self. This is why Christ gave up his life as a ransom for many. He was called the friend of sinners. All three of the essentials that we looked at today point to sacrifice. Because it's God's love, not mine. It's God's kindness, not mine. It's God's truth, not whatever I think. So the question is, is what kind of friend am I? What kind of friend are you? And is there room to grow? And will you talk to the Lord about it this week? Will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for preserving this incredible story. We know, Lord, that through your servant David's kingship that in line eventually that your savior, your son, Jesus Christ, was born. And we are grateful for that gift. We do not deserve it. Lord, I ask that you would enable us to be the kind of friend that you are. Lord, I ask that you enable us to love well, to show kindness, to communicate the truth in love, even at a cost to ourselves because we know it's going to require sacrifice to be a friend because you yourself sacrificed your son, Father, and Jesus Christ, you give up your life. Lord, help us, please help us. Help us live in such a way that we see a radical change in our times. Instead of giving in, Lord, that now is the end, Lord, what would it be like if you were to see more come to know you through the way that we're friends and that you would actually sustain time to give us time to win some to you through our friendship? That would be amazing, Lord, if you would, love, if you would enjoy that. And everyone here today with your eyes bowed and your eyes closed and your head bowed, I just want to encourage you that when I say that it's impossible to be this kind of friend unless you have a relationship with Jesus, you can change that today by submitting your life to Christ. And we have a response team. These are people that want to care for people, want to love and pray for people. We have a response team up front. And as everyone goes, you can just hang around if you want and go talk to one of them and say, I need this relationship with Christ. I do not have a relationship with Jesus. It's impossible for me to be a friend like that. I want to be a friend like that. Talk with one of them today. And Christian, if you say there's a deficiency in the way that I love, there's a deficiency in my kindness, there's a deficiency, I don't tell people the truth. I withhold the truth. Or I'm fearful of telling the truth. Then come and pray with someone on this response team. 
Let me close us. Lord, again, we ask that you'd go before us, that you'd pave the way for us, that we'd be the friends that you want us to be. But for your glory alone, not for our joy, not only for our betterment or for us to feel good, Lord, but for your glory, for your fame and your renown. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.